millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Today, Ukraine faced the fifth day of invasion by Russian forces. As authorities say casualties continue to mount, we discuss the EU's policy U-turn in their agreement to send arms and Ireland's decision to constructively abstain from the move. Latest estimates suggest at least half a million Ukrainians have already fled their homeland, with millions more to come. How will Europe cope with this humanitarian crisis? And later, the latest report from the UN serves as a wake-up call to act on climate change. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. In today's developments, earlier Russian and Ukrainian officials held talks for five hours with Ukraine demanding an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of all Russian troops. The meeting ended with the promise of another meeting. Our President Zelensky has also called on the European Union to give his country EU membership immediately. The United Nations General Assembly held an emergency meeting, the first of its kind in 40 years, ahead of a vote this week to isolate Russia by deploring its aggression against Ukraine and demanding Russian troops stop fighting and withdraw. This war was not provoked. It was chosen by someone who is right now sitting in the bunker. We know what happened with the person who sat in the bunker in Berlin in May 1945. If we fail to respond now, we will face much more than criticism. We will face oblivion. It must not happen. The Russian army does not pose a threat to the civilians of Ukraine, we, uh, is not shelling civilian areas in areas and cities where Russian armed forces have taken control, and these areas are uh, seeing citizens living their lives normally. Well, meanwhile, the Ukrainian government has said that dozens of people were killed and hundreds injured in the city of Kharkiv in what's been described as a cluster munition strike on dense urban areas. Well, first tonight, I'd like to cross live to the Ukrainian embassy where the Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland, Larissa Garasco, is standing by. Thank you for joining us tonight, Ambassador. The fifth day of war, half a million people have fled. Um, from, from where you are, Ambassador, and what you're hearing and seeing from your home country, um, how would you describe the plight of your people? So the uh, uh, Ukraine is facing the most horrible time since 2019-41, I mean since the World War II, uh, Russian military forces uh, are bombing uh, and attacking our cities, uh, our villages, our country, 
um, many uh, many cities and many towns uh, are already destroyed. Um, Russian military forces uh, bomb, uh, is bombing uh, social infrastructure. We have many casualties among civilians and children. Uh, as for today, we have um, around 50, uh, 50 kids uh, uh, were killed. Um, Russia, Russian military forces are suffering uh, also losses because uh, more, more than 5,000 uh, Russians uh, were killed during these uh, five days. And uh, as you know, uh, 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 their forces also gain control uh, over the Chernobyl nuclear plant, nuclear power plant. So, and the situation is very dangerous. Now they are bombing. Like this time, when we when we have this uh, conversation, they are bombing also uh, electricity power station not far from Kiev. So they have uh, intention to destroy whole the country and kill whole like many Ukrainians. So we, uh, our state, uh, yeah. Just, just to ask you about those, those talks that took place today um, on, on the Belarusian border between a Ukrainian and a Russian delegation. Were you expecting anything at all to come from those talks today? You know, um, as I uh, mentioned many times uh, in different interviews and uh, leadership of our country, that uh, we are uh, fully committed to the peaceful solution. And uh, today's talks uh, was uh, another chance to, to reach uh, a uh, peaceful resolution of this um, of this situation of this war actually, and uh, one of our demand, of course, uh, uh, is to to uh, like to stop uh, firing and uh, to uh, to withdraw Russian military troops from from our territory. Um, unfortunately, uh, the shelling, bombing, and attacking are continuous. So unfortunately, uh, both sides uh, didn't get any, any special solution from now, that I, moment. I wanted to ask you, because we saw the scenes from Dublin airport of Ukrainians leaving um, to go back to their homeland to fight. Have many been in contact with you saying this is their intention? Um, can they support safe passage? What's your sense of, the Ukra of Ukrainian people living here and their desire um, to return to Ukraine? Are they also fearful of, of what they're going to come upon when they're there? Many Ukrainians um, from Ireland uh, uh, have left uh, for Ukraine now. Uh, I know about that. I, I, I know uh, many, many people, many Ukrainians. Uh, our nations are united now as never been, as, uh, and of course, uh, Ukrainians from abroad, from diaspora, um, are willing to, to return to Ukraine and defend uh, our country. And by the way, 
um, I, I want to say that Irish people, you are incredible. I never expected uh, such uh, such uh, support, uh, solidarity with, with our country. Uh, uh, it's amazing. We are receiving many calls, letters, uh, donations, uh, aid. So thank you, thank you, Irish nation, for 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 the for this support. But of course, uh, the democratic world have to be more united, has to be more united, and the voice of the democratic Europe uh, has to be more loud. Uh, and uh, earlier this morning, our president uh, appealed to the EU. Uh, to grant Ukraine the EU candidate uh, uh, country uh, status. So, of course, we we are uh, we, we will be grateful Ireland for for support in this process. Um, on 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 support and, and what's being done here by our government, um, the government says it does not intend on in expelling the Russian ambassador Yuri Filatov. Um, that Taoiseach says on that it's important to keep diplomatic channels open. What's your view on that? Do you believe the ambassador should be sent home? Um, uh, Russia has to be isolated by all possible means. By expelling diplomats, and by the, uh, by the way, UN uh, expelled 12 uh, diplomats uh, from New York, from Russian mission in New York, uh, by cutting all uh, trade and economic ties with Russia, by banning uh, Russian media, which, spread, which are spreading disinformation and fake news, by all means, by, by uh, blocked uh, and uh, Irish uh, uh, seaports and ocean ports uh, for access uh, uh, for for access uh, to Russian vessels, etc. So uh, Russia has to be isolated. Russia okay. has to be punished for for crimes uh, against humanity. Right. And by the way, Ukraine submitted. Uh, our application to the International Court of Justice one day ago. And we will hear, I think, a little bit more on that later in the programme. For now, Larissa Grasco, Ambassador um, in, from Ukraine, thank you so much for joining us on the programme tonight. Thank you. Now in studio to discuss, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Clonan, security analyst with the Journal.ie, Pather Tobin, TD for Aintu, Emer Higgins, TD for Fine Gael, and John Mooney, journalist with the Sunday Times. Um, on the subject there of the, the Russian ambassador, um, Pather, you'd be in favour of getting rid of Yuri Filatov. Yeah, I think at this stage, uh, given the fact that there are negotiations that are happening, but still there is no ceasefire, I don't think it's tolerable that uh, we allow the Russian ambassador to stay here. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Irish government are not moving on this is because they're waiting for the European Union to move on this. They're waiting for, a, let's say, a, a uniform uh, decision by the European Union uh, before the ambassador is expelled. I just th don't think it's tolerable whatsoever uh, that we allow for the Russian ambassador to stay here, given what's happening uh, in the Ukraine at the moment. And I just think it, it's really strange that you have governments, you know, TDs writing a, a petition 
um, to their own governments to carry out an action of expelling the Russian ambassadors. Surely that should be an internal working of government and it should be a decision that they are coming to okay, at this stage. Okay, so you, you think that they're it's okay for them to do it, but it shouldn't be made public. Well, no, no I, I just think it, I, I've never seen, uh, usually opposition TDs uh, create petitions against, uh, to ask a government to do something, but these are the bulk of government TDs themselves asking the government to do something. Um, this should be something that, that, that is done already. And I, I just think, you know, Ireland should be leading the way here rather than looking for permission from the EU before we take this step. Um, should we be leading the way here? I mean, we have heard from government that it's the diplomatic back channels are really important here. And essentially, though, it is an EU decision. And um, that's the bottom line. But what about um, dissent within government on this matter of the Russian ambassador and whether or not he should stay here? I want to see the Russian ambassador expelled. I want to see the Russian embassy closed down. But I appreciate that now isn't the time for Ireland to be acting unilaterally, that we need to work in collaboration with our EU colleagues and that there's, stre there's strength in numbers, but there's solidarity in numbers too. If every EU nation came out and took this decision together collectively, that would send a much, much stronger statement. And I believe there are negotiations that, as Minister Coveney said today, that's still on the table. Is your name on that petition? It is indeed. Okay, so you're, you're one of those TDs who think we should take a stronger stance against Yuri Filatov, notwithstanding this concern from government that if you, if you do that, it's going to mean the expulsion of, Russian, of Irish diplomats in Russia and the knock-on effect it's going to have there. Unfortunately, there's knock-on effects on everything. We see the knock-on effects in the Western world of the sanctions as well, and that's why these decisions need to be made, weighed up. And that's why I think collectively the EU needs to come to a decision on that. Um, what do you think about it, Tom? Is there a diplomatic, strong diplomatic reason to keep Yuri Filatov here? Well, I think Ambassador Filatov will have a difficulty getting home if he is expelled, since all flights are banned from Russian airspace and vice versa from EU airspace. I mean, I think now is the time for, for cool heads. Uh, we're, we're rushing headlong, in, we're, we're being propelled headlong in, into the possibility of a major regional war in Europe the biggest of its kind since the Second World War. Um, Vladimir Putin isn't going to be around forever, and the Russian people and the Ukrainians hopefully will be. Uh, so we have to be mindful in this very delicate phase of you know wh what the succession plan might be for for Vladimir Putin. Um, I think this this issue in, in Ukraine is a gross miscalculation on the part of the Kremlin. And, and I think we may see movement in, in that regard in the coming weeks. Um, John, on this, in making that decision, because it's, it's sort of widely being put out that this is a political decision to make on whether or not the ambassador should stay. But you say it goes a lot deeper than that. There's intelligence services and everything else involved with that well, that it makes does. it far um, more sensitive. I, I suspect what's really going on, the expulsions of ambassadors is a political theatre. It serves no real um, purpose in terms of uh, change in the Kremlin's mind, in terms of its intentions or its actions. So, say in the Irish context, the Irish embassy is used for uh, diplomatic purposes, but Russia's had an intelligence presence in this country for the past 30 or 40 years, um, right going back to Soviet Russia. So at the moment, the Russian embassy, uh, or the Russian mission to Ireland is two different locations. It's its embassy on Orwell Road and a second residency, um, which is the, uh, known as Loyola. Um, so within that architecture, you have a number of intelligence officers operating out of there. Uh, Russian intelligence are really, really active in this country, and Ireland is used as a uh, location where they travel in and out of Europe, etc. How active? 
they're regarded now as a critical threat to national security, far way ahead of jihadists or even dis violent dissident republicans. So when you think about these issues, um, I'm pretty sure the government's uh, position has been actually not dictated by Europe, it's been dictated by the guards and military intelligence. And I suspect what's probably going on, um, Russia is now on a wartime footing, so they traditionally, and anyone who's familiar with their intelligence service and their military would know they have a backup plan to everything. So you can expel Yuri Filatov and you can take a number of diplomats who are uh, members of their military intelligence, which is GRU, and the SVR, which is their uh, foreign intelligence service. But th they will be the legal residency in this country. Um, but what you won't be removing is the illegal networks that they've set up here that are targeting pharma companies, so, the world of politics. So it's what will, what will replace that, well, um, what, 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 what will I, I assume in the, the thinking in Garda headquarters and mil the military is is that we can disband that network and have uh, pay play the next twelve or uh, spend the next twelve months trying to uh, detect the new ones who replaced them. All right. Well, just before we came on air, I spoke to European correspondent for the Irish Times, Naomi O'Leary, who is in Brussels. I began by asking her about the EU's landmark decision to aid the Ukrainian military. It's certainly been a watershed weekend. Um, it's the latest in a number of huge shifts uh, that occurred in the recent days as you know, public opinion really swung towards tougher measures towards Russia, more support for Ukraine. Um, so we saw the 27 EU member states agree on Sunday incredibly quickly to uh, put aside 450 million euro for lethal weaponry, to buy lethal weaponry for Ukraine. What that means is member states can go ahead and offer what they want, and then they essentially invoice the costs to a joint fund of the EU. Uh, it's under the control of member states what they purchase. Ireland won't be a part of it, but it will be sending medical uh, aid. It can uh, contribute to PPE on non-lethal non things. Um, it exercised what's, what's called a constructive abstention. That's a way for Ireland, in accordance with its neutrality policy, to abstain, to not be part of sending lethal weaponry, but neither to stop the bloc as a whole from doing it if they want. Um, there's also, I mean, within this, there's been sort of policy shifts from neutral nations such as Sweden. We are seeing change coming from individual countries who heretofore would have taken um, a very stringently neutral stance, would you say? Well, I mean, the neutrality policy of each country, I would say, that has one in the EU is unique and complex. Just like Ireland's isn't, you know, that clear cut, it's not that defined. Sweden, too, has its own history. It's unaligned. Um, but, you know, there's a debate about what neutrality means and so on. But yes, there was a significant shift in that it announced it would join in this uh, playing for lethal weaponry to Ukraine, including anti-tank weapons. Um, that was a big shift from Sweden, which was always in the neutral camp in the EU. And that came uh, just after a major announcement by Germany of an enormous cash injection for their military. This is a country that had lagged on defence spending, had long been called out by the United States and NATO from not doing enough to keep its military in shape. Um, and so this was all dramatically reversed on Sunday uh, with a, an announcement of 100 billion euro to go into min military spending. Um, and of course, once they make these decisions, then you imagine that that's sort of copper fastened in terms of, you know, budgets and military spends in places like Germany. Um, just to bring another story that we're hearing about tonight, Naomi, and that's um, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in The Hague announcing that he's launching an investigation into possible war crimes in Ukraine. What can you tell us about that? 
My understanding is that Prosecutor Kareem Khan has opened an investigation saying that he's satisfied that at this point there's sufficient evidence to uh, investigate whether war, both war crimes and crimes against humanity have been um, committed in Ukraine. This is dating back since the start of the conflict. Remember, this conflict has actually been going on since 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and supported the secession of breakaway uh, parts um, of, of Ukraine in its east. Um, and there's been an ongoing war there between the Ukrainian military and uh, and Russian-backed forces. Um, and this investigation will cover the period up to now, but also going forward. So it will cover the current uh, invasion as well. Okay, thank you for bringing us right up to date on that. Naomi O'Leary, Europe correspondent with the Irish Times. Thanks very much. Thank you. And to come back to my panel on this, Tom Clonan, um, big reaction to this half a billion euros spend on logistical and military support. When you heard about that and Ireland's support of this, although taking that approach, that financial support we offer does not breach our military neutrality um, and this whole line um, that they're coming from there, that the, this, this abstention on the grounds that they would be uncomfortable with actually giving money directly um, for weapons. Um, does this surprise you, this shift, what, well, what we're hearing about? Well, I, I think you have, we have to bear in mind what's, what's going to happen next. And I'll, I'll return to that momentarily. But our policy of neutrality is complex, as your previous contributor said. I mean, we, we contributed troops to the NATO uh, operations in Afghanistan right back from 2002. So we do have uh, flexibility to participate and support uh, UN Security Council mandated NATO missions. UN Security Council mandated European Union missions. Now, I think those kind of resolutions uh, will, will possibly uh, change and our position may shift with that. But let's be clear, there has been may a kind of... May shift again, you mean? Yeah, well, well, I think when I say what's going to happen next. So up to now, there's been a kind of a sense of, false sense of security about Ukraine, a sense of optimism that the resistance has been somewhat effective against a faltering Russian offensive. The Russians have just been using their reconnaissance units to identify and probe the cities of Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kiev. In the next week, we're going to see the Russians bring up their main forces and they're going to destroy those cities in depth. And we're going to have thousands and thousands of civilian casualties, as was the case in Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. Uh, we saw how the Russians targeted civilian targets like hospitals and other uh, you know, heavily populated areas in Syria. There has been no mention of humanitarian evacuation corridors, which is an obligation that would be placed on the Russians. So when things now really start to deteriorate, as they will in the coming week, then you're going to see the European Union mobilised in a way that we haven't seen since uh, the end of the Second World War. And that is because this is not just a fight for Ukraine. This is now a fight for Europe, our shared values and our, our democracy. Yeah, I, I sense from what you're suggesting now is what we could see in, in the very near future, within a week or two, is that this, this expands oh, to in, a Europe-wide war. In, in, oh, no. Not, not, not so, so that's, that, but, that, that's but that the thing we, that we have to try and avoid is escalation. No, but, but, that, as, but that what we are likely to see is a, an expansion by Russia in what they're doing, this idea that Ukraine are, are putting up a good fight. You believe that's going to be short-lived? Absolutely, because the Russians are going to go in into the cities, into the centres, and it's going to involve combat in the urban environment. And that involves street by street, house to house fighting of the type we've seen in Chechnya, of the type we've seen in 
places like Fallujah and another city. But this is now going to happen in Europe and the Ukrainians are going to pay a very high price for this and you're going to have thousands of Russian soldiers will be killed. And that's why I say the pressure on Vladimir Putin is going to increase. Uh, and despite protests throughout Russia, I think the way their system works, it's the people in his inner circle. He's now committing Russia to an unsustainable, unwinnable war. But it has the capacity to destroy all of the participants to that conflict, particularly if they escalate and particularly if they, you know, carry out that threat to use a tactical nuclear weapon or thermobaric weapons. Like, this is a very, very dangerous and febrile situation. Um, Pada, you say that this move by the EU is an unprecedented in terms of, of, of a step in providing a massive arms package in Ukraine. You're concerned about the move. You think it should be debated in the Dáil? Well, first of all, I think from an Irish perspective, I do welcome the decision by the government uh, to abstain from lethal force uh, uh, being given. Uh, and the reason being, first of all, we haven't exhausted the humanitarian efforts that we should be uh, involved in uh, for a start. So there's going to be a big refugee crisis on the borders and, uh, of the Ukraine. We should be at the heart of helping there. Even at the, at the moment in the cities, at the heart of Ukraine, there's problems with medical uh, 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 devices and oxygen. Yeah. We should be do, helping in that regard. Problem with with what we're doing and what we're doing to date, i.e., that that line that as somebody asked the question, um, you're funding the fuel for the tank, but not the tank itself. When but it comes to Ireland's participation in all of this, I, I would caution the government going any further in provision of, of lethal force, and, and the reason being as well is because Ireland has a proud history of neutrality and we can be honest brokers uh, in the de-escalation process too. We can be activists right. in the de-escalation process There has too. been criticism that we're not going far enough. Within your own party, Emer Higgins, we've had Neil Richmond come out and say, you know, that we should be more aligning ourselves to the likes of Sweden and Finland and w what's happening there, where they are ostensibly neutral countries, but they're taking a stronger stand and they are, you know, funding the military. Ireland is a neutral country. But we are taking a side on this. We're not on the side of evil. We're on the side of the innocent people who are in bunkers right now, who are going to war for their country. And that's why we're taking the actions we've taken so far in terms of waiving visas for Ukrainians into Ireland, in terms of sending aid, 19 million euro in aid to the Ukraine, closing our, air, our airspace to Russian forces, freezing do, do Russian money, though, freezing Russian assets. And those really strong, strong sanctions. And Claire, they're important too, because those economic sanctions- They are, and I, I think people recognise the importance yeah, of the economic they're, sanctions. They're, they're the but way I'm, to stop I'm wondering about something Eamon Ryan saying today, that if we were um, to do more and if we were to directly, you know, send arms, as it were, that it could compromise our peacekeeping. Do you think it could? You're laughing at that. I am, yeah, because it's a load of nonsense. Um, Tom is absolutely correct. You're, what, what is happening at the moment is, is that there are certain types of Russian forces have went ahead and have reached various cities. The, anyone who's familiar with Russian military and its history will know what is about to happen now is their conventional armed forces and their uh, uh, sort of uh, the strong arm of their military will begin shelling those cities. There's a cultural issue with them attacking Kiev because it's the birthplace of Russian Christianity. Um, for the past, you know, culturally, there will be a difficulty with their troops doing that. But the Russian military is political. It's not a professional army. It stands to 
protect the Kremlin. It follows their orders. The General Gerizimov, uh, the head of the Russian Armed Forces, is not someone who is going to stand up to the Kremlin or to Vladimir Putin and say no. There's an awful lot of analysis on uh, Russian history, R Russian military intentions and their intelligence services that is, is quite frankly, nonsense and it's naive. Um, they have chosen to invade Ukraine. They're going in with a specific objective. And if you look at the history of Russia's interventions in invading countries, even back to Soviet times, um, there's no real history of them pulling out due to international sanctions or anything else. We're in a very dangerous situation and there will be, I would predict, catastrophic uh, amounts of uh, consequences in the next week or two. I, I think it's only a matter of time before they start shelling uh, many Ukrainian cities. OK, well, we'll talk about what could come of that in terms of the humanitarian crisis. My thanks to um, John Mooney. The rest of the panel will be staying with us. Coming up after the break, Europe facing uh, its largest humanitarian crisis in decades as Ukrainians flee the conflict. Stay with us. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. More than half a million refugees have fled Ukraine since Russia began its invasion late last week, marking the beginning of what the EU estimates will be more than 7 million people displaced by the conflict. Well, Emer Higgins, Pather Tobin and Dr Tom Clonan are still with us. I'd also like to welcome Quiva Tabara, CEO of Trokra, to our panel. Uh, but first, we're going to go live now to our Euro Europe correspondent for Euronews, Shona Murray, who's in Bucharest in Romania. She's been at the border. Uh, Shona, what can you tell us about the situation there, about Ukrainians coming through the border seeking refuge? Yeah, it's just incredibly desperate situation. So cold, it was snowing all there today and last night. People coming in after seeing bloodshed, rocket attacks. So many women, of course, because they don't have their husbands, they don't have their sons with them. So just so much pain and etched on people's faces. Children totally traumatized by what they've seen, crying. You know, most women I saw coming through the border really just had tears streaming down their faces. A lot of elderly people as well, um, people who really shouldn't be out in the cold like any of us. And and then uh, once that people do get through the border, I have to say that what I did see was a huge welcome from a local volunteers, Romanian volunteers handing out clothes and food and baby products. And then, then 
people then brought to a camp a couple of kilometres away in a football stadium where they're registered if they don't have their own passports. The EU has allowed, um, you know, a Ukrainian stay for over the 30 or over 90 days for three years, but they have to have ID, biometric passports. If not, they can give some sort of documentation, but that's very difficult when you're fleeing a war zone. And many children don't, don't have documentation, but it's altogether, it's it's desperate and extremely sad. And there's just, it's just so much hopelessness for those people. And for those, of course, that they've left behind, many in the case of, of young men and uh, men that are being are, are, are left behind and are, are fighting that war and uh, the case of separated families really and divided in this conflict. On the broader humanitarian outlook, we are hearing about 7 million, millions of people who will be fleeing Ukraine and looking for refuge um, right across Europe. Uh, how are people, you know, choosing their escape? Are they... Uh, are the borders all open in every country? Um, are there problems there? Are, are they facing red tape? We had our own visa waiver scheme um, that's in place to help help people now come over. But the challenges that face people seeking refuge, are we likely to see more of that? I mean, definitely. Right, obviously, the refugee crisis has been a bit really problematic for the past few years. But a lot of that is down to in part xenophobia from particularly right-wing authoritarian governments in in the in the EU the likes of Poland and Hungary refuse to take any refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and so on but actually the borders are open for Ukrainians and as I said the EU has extended the permission for Ukrainians to stay for up to three years and the borders to Poland and other parts of the EU are fully open so I think that won't be too difficult. There is a huge amount of welcome as well. There's a feeling that obviously Ukraine is so close to the EU and the EU is hugely vested in this fight against Russia, not just the EU, the West, essentially the entire global community. I think what's interesting as well is because the refugee crisis would be so fragmenting for the European Union for so many years, it would have been easy for Putin to think that further refugees, such as around 7 million, would further create problems amongst uh, EU member states. But it's actually created a lot more unity because I think the feeling is that everybody needs to focus on Putin and focus on, you know, resecuring the, the multilateral system and the global world order and maybe stop fighting amongst ourselves. Okay, Shona Murray, Europe's Euronews correspondent, thank you for joining us from Bucharest tonight with the very latest there um, from the border. Thank you for that. Now I'm joined uh, by my panel who's still with here, me, here with me in studio and also by Quiva Dabara, uh, CEO of Trocra. Thank you for joining us tonight, Quiva. Just on to what we're hearing there about the desperate scenes at borders, really people in anguished uh, f families divided um, and all the horror of war really being visited on so many people now. Um, do you think the outlook is very bleak in terms of this humanitarian crisis that's now unfolding? It's, it's a terrible crisis. It is really, really devastating. And what's most devastating about it is that it was completely avoidable. This is a man-made conflict. There are millions of people, 84 million people around the world who are already displaced. And in this conflict, what we're seeing is many, many more, possibly millions more will be displaced as a result of a man-made conflict that never needed to happen. But what is most important now is the protection of civilians. Where there is conflict, there is international law international humanitarian law that gives primacy to civilians and their rights. So the parties to the conflict need to be very clear that they are not targeting civilian infrastructure, that civilians are protected. And there does need to be monitoring of these abuses so that there can be accountability by the warring parties should there be crimes or violations committed against people um, as a result of this conflict, which no doubt there will be, 
and therefore accountability needs to be assured. Yeah, at this point, and we are already hearing from the, the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court who's talking about these war crimes and crimes against humanity um, in Ukraine, some of them historical and some of them relating to current events. Emer, in terms of what our government is doing, um, we came quite late with that visa waiver scheme to help Ukrainian families be reunited. Um, are we able to manage this? Are we able to help people who, who desperately will need our help in the coming weeks and months? We absolutely have to. There's no ifs and buts about it. This is our moral duty and our moral obligation to uh, and schemes are being put in place as we sit here tonight to make sure that that can happen. Okay. Um, Pather, um, from your point of view, uh, in, in terms of how this is, is, is managed, do you think the government is doing enough? Are you happy that um, we, we've had the foresight to, to see what is going to come down the line here in terms of people needing our help? Well, I think, first of all, the, the level of goodwill that exists amongst the Irish public uh, to the people of Ukraine is, is incredible at the moment. I think people are watching at home looking for ways to seek how they can help. Um, I don't think the, the, the money that the government has provided is enough. Uh, I think you know there's, there's, there's going to be significant problems both inside the, the borders of uh, Poland and Hungary uh, in the short term. And there are columns of people, uh, kilometres, tens of kilometres long, uh, within Ukraine at the moment. And many of them are, are not, they haven't got water, they haven't got uh, clothing, they haven't got food, etc. We need to do far more to make sure that that money gets to those people rapidly soon. Mm -hmm. And even with, with, within the cities of Kiev and other cities, there's now difficulties uh, getting certain products uh, and that needs to change as well. I think the Irish government needs to up the level of investment uh, that it's, uh, it's, it, it's giving to okay. the Ukraine, but also making sure that we can take refugees to Ireland and give them uh, safety here. And do you have issues with, with, with refugees coming over here and people seeking refuge in this country? Oh, absolutely not. I don't think anybody would have, uh, in their right mind, could have an, an issue with a refugee uh, fleeing any war okay. or any I'm, violence I'm anywhere ask, in the world. I'm asking yeah. that just in the context of comments that you made back in, in April of 2019 on, on the founding of Aintu when you were talking about, specifically about immigration, there's growing unease and concern among many people in Ireland around the issue of immigration. Our view is simple. There needs to be sustainable levels of immigration in this country and it needs to be managed. Do you think that applies? Yeah, so, so if, if the, the sentence I actually prefaced that, phase, uh, that phrase with was that we should always accept uh, people who are in danger of war or uh, of famine or of violence of any sort. And, you know, I think Ireland has a generous history when it comes to giving shelter and support to people fleeing war. Uh, the discussions I, I was making was that there is a debate that needs to be had with regards to economic emigration at some stage in this state. And, and again, we're not saying that there shouldn't be economic emigration. We're just saying that we need to be able to have a, a sustainable level of it. It needs to be managed. There's a lot of people who will be coming over here. You know, Ukraine is not necessarily the richest country in the world who will be seeking refuge, who have very little. Um, and for many of those people, they may look to stay here, depending on what, you know, as Tom was saying about, you know, the, the like cities being pummeled, what, what we may see down the line with this war. It has to be 100% clear. Ireland has a humanitarian responsibility to provide shelter and safety for people who are fleeing war, violence or famine.
from a, a military point of view, from an army point of view, and we know we have a really strong peacekeeping record, Tom, um, could we be doing more? Is there scope for the Irish army to be involved more in peacekeeping in the region? Um, to, I know right now we're obviously at a point of deep conflict, yeah. but around that, um, do you think that there's scope for us to do a bit well, more? I think we're beyond that point, unfortunately, at the moment. And just to echo what Quivo is saying, like the laws of armed conflict and the Geneva Conventions are very clear about the responsibilities of the invading party to the civilian population. They must provide safe evacuation corridors, places of safety. They must feed them, clothe them, look after them. That's not happening. And that obviously didn't happen uh, in other uh, jurisdictions that, that Russia has intervened in. What we're looking at now is a very stark choice for the Ukrainian military. Will they try to defend you know, a desperate defence of their cities and create sieges like Mostar and Sarajevo that we saw during the Bosnia conflict? Or will they allow the Russians to be drawn into their cities where they'll have prepared defences and networks of defences? And that's going to create a, a really brutal street by street, house to house war with weapons that are you know, being fired into people's homes. And the fact that you know, the Russians will now use the fact that all males have been issued with weapons, many people are arming themselves as a pretext for the indiscriminate use of force against any civilians that they encounter. Like we are really now entering a, what, what is going to be an absolutely catastrophic moment for the people of Ukraine. And if Europe provides weapons through Lviv in the West, then the Russians will target Lviv. They will maneuver right onto the Polish border. The possibility of overlap and escalation then is very, very high. This, this war is an absolute catastrophe. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, what we're seeing unfolding is catastrophic, Quiva. Um, just on the humanitarian issue and our reaction here in Ireland to it, um, is it safe to say that there has been a greater reaction to this and more a different reaction to this, to, to other wars that we're seeing, to the situation in Afghanistan, um, to Yemen, to Syria? And why is that? Oh, without doubt, there has been an outpouring of sympathy for the people in Ukraine. It's very present in our living rooms and our radios every single day. We're hearing about it all day long in a way that we don't hear about conflicts in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where Trokra works and where there is huge conflict and where hundreds of thousands of people are displaced every day. But the impact on those people is exactly the same as the impact that we are seeing on our TV screens every day. It's women and small children and elderly people who inevitably bear the brunt. Trokra is working in Ukraine and in Poland with our local partners Caritas Ukraine and Caritas Poland and they're doing the same kind of work that their equivalents are doing be it in Syria be it in Lebanon be it in Myanmar which is a completely forgotten crisis but we are present trying to support people we're also asking for the Irish government to keep pressure on the UN Security Council and on other UN bodies on those forgotten conflicts because for sure this conflict is now in the the eye not just of the public and the Irish public are extremely empathetic but at a political level we need resolution to all of the conflicts that are actively ongoing. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Shona and to Tom. The rest of the panel will be staying with us after the break. The UN warns that the window is closing if we want to get a grip on the climate crisis. Stay with us. from the invasion of Ukraine and there was another stark warning about the future of the planet over the climate crisis. The Intergovernmental Panel on 
Climate Change says that climate breakdown is accelerating rapidly. Many of the impacts will be more severe than predicted and we only have a short time to avoid the worst. Well, Emer Higgins, Pather Tobin and Quiva Tabara are still here with me um, for more on this. And Quiva Tabara, we were talking about refugees, you know, war, humanitarian refugees, climate refugees. And that's something that you've been looking at as countries deal with the fallout and climate change, how they will be forced to leave their country because of this growing problem we have that's been so highlighted in this climate report that's out today. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And what many people might not realise is that actually most of the people who are displaced are not displaced across borders, they're displaced within their own countries and they are from the poorest countries in the world and if they do move across a border they move to another very poor country. One of the most startling facts in the report that came out today about adaptation and impact was that if, if uh, the temperatures rise to 1.7 degrees, then you will have over 350 million people displaced within Africa as a result directly of climate change. This is before you take into account any of the impacts of conflict, for example. So those people will need to find other places to live purely as a result of drought, floods or other disasters that are brought upon by climate. Ema, we really have to up our game here, don't we? Like we heard really, you know, on, on what we're doing. And the big question is, is it too late now? Um, Eamon Ryan at an emergency UN Energy Council says that Ireland's climate action plan to reduce overhaul greenhouse gas emissions by 50% uh, by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050 will be transformative. But the EPA says simply where we're at now, that won't be possible. We have to make it possible and that's why we're investing so much in this. Our climate action plan isn't just a plan, it's legislation, it's funding, it's backed up by both science and by Where money. Where are we at with that now? Because obviously there's targets for every year. I know that they're, they're, they're backloaded essentially, we're going to see it more, yeah. you know, five years after this first five years. But how are we doing? Because all reports from the, the Climate Commission seem to be saying that already we're lagging behind our targets. Well, we've committed to going from a laggard to a leader. We've put oh, in place this plan. Yeah. We've put in place this plan. We've put in place the money to make it happen. We're getting at the moment an awful lot of flack for things that are part of that plan, like carbon tax, which are unfortunately a, a necessary evil if we're, in or, if we're to actually hit probably those Probably only a small part of the overall plan. They, they are indeed, but they're also part of what will get us there. I mean, it, it, we have to be ambitious on this. Just on that, because we yeah. hear so much about commitment, we hear so much about ambition, but actual sure. action on this, Emer, where are we at? The, the action is the plan. The action is exactly the steps that we're taking. But the action is Mon the ambition. No, the, the, the action is the action plan. And every action that we're taking, from investing in, um, in agriculture, for example, investing in the decarbonisation. Are we seeing it now? Yes, these programmes are underway right, okay. Okay. in farms so, and communities right across this country, in schools right across this country. We, we see these actions taking place every single so, day. And they can't be underestimated either because they are a, a change in how we as a society are going about our day-to-day. We can see the investment in public transport, the costs right. being reduced, greenways, cycleways. Well, I think the cost reduced in public transport was a direct response to the, the cost, cost of living. Yeah. Just, Pader, I just yeah. want to ask you on that. Like, you agree that we must pay higher prices for fuel um, to stand against Putin. But what about paying higher prices for fuel to combat climate change? Well, can I just say, you mentioned where are we with regards to our targets. So we have a 4.8%. Well, we'll get to the targets. Okay. But just on that very issue, because I know that you're, you're staunchly against the carbon tax. Well, first of all, we have... You're we, OK we, with the fuel hikes we, if it means... We believe that there's a place for carbon... We, we believe that there's a place for carbon taxes. But right now, we're actually gone beyond where carbon tax would have brought us. So the, the idea of a carbon tax is to reach a price to move people from their product to another product. 
we've already reached that price through market forces anyways. So any addition with a carbon tax has the, a punitive effect because people are locked into those energy sources. Okay. They but can't you, leave those energy I mean, sources. Would you concede that in order to, to see change and to affect change, that it, it will hit us in the pocket? Like, I've, no I've no doubt that it's going to be a cost, Claire. but it, listen, there is so much more the government could be doing other than carbon taxes that it's not doing. So, for example, it had an, an auction for sustainable energy to be uh, added to the grid. Those 88... Uh, uh, yes, but of those 88, 60 of those are not going to be reach their target dates. There's a delay of 27 months in some of those projects at the moment. The government have a, a reduction in, in CO2 at 4.8 for each year up until 2025. Last year there was an increase. This year there will be an increase in, in carbon emissions. They're, they're not even... Uh, achieving right. the low levels of, uh, I, of targets they have for the last Ema two years. To that briefly. So, so you're saying that we're not achieving a reduction in carbon emissions, but you don't was, want to tax carbon. Paddy, that doesn't no, make no. sense. Like we, we have to take difficult decisions in order to achieve these targets. I mean, you didn't even vote for the Climate Action Emer. Low Carbon Bill. Where, where's your commitment to climate change? Here, here's my commitment, right? We're the, we're the only country in Europe right. that doesn't have a feed-in okay. tariff in, in the generation of electricity in this said, country. The the only tariff. Thank you we're all. in the middle thanks of rectifying that. This discussion will, of course, go on. Uh, my thanks to all our guests, to Quiva, to Pather and to Emer uh, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.